0: Hey yo, one, two, three, get up, we got victory. No weapon they throw at me, you know it won't prosper. Welcome to another edition of the CODcast, Commonwealth Magazine's weekly podcast looking at politics and policies with the people who know the issues the best. I'm Commonwealth reporter Jack Sullivan. Polls are a fascinating glimpse at where candidates and issues stand with the voting public, but trying to divine meaning and predictions from the numbers is a daunting if impossible task because they are just that, a glimpse, a snapshot of the moment. And different polls carry different meanings. To help us cut through the fog, we have two leading experts on the data with us today. Dr. John Johnson, the CEO of Edgeworth Economics in Washington, D.C., and the author of Every Data, The Misinformation Hidden in the Little Data You Consume Every Day. Dr. Johnson uh, holds a PhD from uh, MIT in economics and is a consultant to a number of Fortune 100 companies as well as government agencies and often gives speeches and lectures on the meaning of data in our lives and has some interesting takes on polling data. Welcome, Dr. Johnson. Thank you. Also joining us today is somebody who needs no introduction, but I will anyway, Steve Casella, president of the Massing Polling Group and one of the most respected analysts locally and nationally when it comes to political numbers crunching. Steve led research surveys for the Department of State in uh, Iraq and is president of the New England chapter of the American Association for Public Opinion Research. In addition to regularly writing for Commonwealth, Steve is a regular contributor to WBOR, as well as an in-demand commentator for local radio intelligence. Thanks for coming down the hall, Steve. Glad to be here. Um, so let's, let's start it with, um, with the presidential uh, polling data. Uh, early <coughs> on, uh, Donald Trump pointed to his popularity in the polls as uh um as testament for what his candidacy is about now that he seems to be trailing the polls are meaningless to him he says
1: you know they they just don't matter what's the difference what happened there well i'm not sure the polls have changed the poll results have and i think it's a little bit more attitude about (laughs) what they mean um you know, my take on it is actually the time you really should trust the polls is the closer you get to the election. You've got fewer undecideds. Historically, as you get within a few weeks, the polls tend to do a lot better. So if anything, this is the time when I would be paying attention to the polls the most closely if I were a candidate. So, um, you know, I can't speak to the politics. I think people can decide that for themselves. But it does seem like it's very, uh, a very results driven uh, orientation for when to pay attention to the polls and when not to.
0: Well, Steve, um, Donald Trump points out all the time that uh, at, at the end of the debates, uh, he points to surveys that show him winner by eighty-seven thirteen, for instance, with the Drudge Report yes. or, um, you know, Breitbart showing him with a ninety-two to eight percent lead. Um, you uh, today, as a matter of fact, on Twitter uh, sent out a um, a graphic that shows um, how other polls have shown him. Uh, to be the loser all of the polls, actually, in in what somebody would consider to be mainstream. Why the difference?
2: Why should people pay attention to one versus the other? The difference isn't so much mainstream versus, you know, not mainstream. It's more good poll versus not good poll or scientific poll versus something that probably shouldn't even be called a poll. Um, You know, basically, it's something where you can go to a website, answer a question, reload the website, vote again, call your friends, get them to vote you know posted on Facebook everybody you they that follows you on Facebook or is friends with you on Facebook votes there's no controls over who can vote and who can say who won so you know there's been some people have even suggested we should stop calling these polls you know 538 has suggested clickers i've heard people call them pinos polls and name only you know <laughs> uh, you know think of some other name that distinguishes them from the things that that we do which is we try to find some sort of representative sample of the people we want to talk to and we control basically who, who's participating rather than just anyone can vote as many times as they want.
0: Well, uh, is, is it junk numbers then, uh, Dr. Johnson, when, when you look at some of these other, uh, you know, self, uh, um, self-attracting self polls?
1: Like, That'd be uh, a charitable description. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. The, the types of polls you're describing, the ones where people can go on and just click, where you can just have massive numbers of people vote over and over, they are junk. That is not science in any way. And the, the statisticians, that pollsters think about it. The whole reason there's a whole science behind this is you have to find, as you said, that representative sample. What does it mean? How are we going to get a group of people that are the likely voters and what do they think? And you want to make sure you're getting those in the right proportions. So if you just have the strongest, the people who feel the most passionate, the people that are, you know, have their own strong predisposition, it doesn't help you at all. It doesn't tell you anything meaningful about those debates That's not science. The thing
2: that's unique, though, this year is that, and the reason that they've gained so much attention, these unscientific, whatever we want to call them, is that the Trump campaign and Trump himself have been touting them, as you mentioned, Jack. You know, there's a graphic that or a set of graphics that get circulated after every debate showing, um, you know, the Breitbart poll, the heavy.com poll, the, you know, time.com poll, the drudge poll, polls, so to speak, and all these polls that you can opt into, in other words, vote as many times as you want. Um, <clears throat> and they all show Trump winning by 70 or 80 points. But again, the thing that's changed really is just how much attention is being focused on them by the candidate. You know, they've always existed. It's just before now, I think most people knew these things aren't something we should really be taking seriously. Whereas this year, there seems to be almost an official effort within the Trump campaign to elevate them and give them some sort of is to push back against all the scientific polls, which uniformly show Clinton won all three debates.
0: Well, if if they have no value, why then do so many media outlets use them? I mean, you can go on to just about any um, newspaper site, whether it's a legacy site or, or one of these uh, new develop, uh, newly developed sites, and, and they have a tell-us-what-you-think poll, you know, why can't we take that as some kind of a basis of data that, you know, there's, you know, tens of thousands of people, for instance that
1: are interested in Donald Trump. Why isn't that a a valuable piece of information? Look, I I think my theory is the reason why media outlets do that is to create engagement with their sites, so that people feel like they're participating in the process. But in terms of sort of what would be useful news, what would be useful in terms of actually getting a barometer of the question we really care about, which is um, who won the debate, or what is the state of the race, that has to be done in a scientific way. So the fact that, tens of thousands of people click on something and sort of tell you, maybe there's some information for some demographic you might care about, but in terms of it actually having any meaning for answering the meaningful questions, it just doesn't, it really doesn't
2: help you at all. And what websites have done these surveys or whatever we want to call them about Different topics for a long time, and, and they're fun. A lot of them are fun. You know that's why they do them. It's you know did Don, did Tom Brady get wronged in Deflategate? Yes or no? You <laughs> well, know, yes, he
0: did. We all know. Well, <laughs> we
2: all do around here. But you look at the website. You know, you look at national websites, and there you can kind of get some fun information because you see everybody who said all the New England states said yes, all the states outside of New England said no. You know, and that's that. That's the kind of fun, entertaining thing that these that these sort of mini surveys could provide, but. Then, when they're elevated to try to compete with scientific surveys in something as important as this, then it really is a pretty—it's just a misuse of data.
0: Well, it's it is important um, in the in the big scheme of things, and and when you look at it, people like us that are you know in the business of of looking at these numbers from my angle, from looking at the political side, and from your angle, looking at the uh, the data, um, how does the average voter then? Use the data how does it come to, how does it filter down into them into
1: useful information but it's hard because there are just so many polling numbers and this year is an incredible you know you go on the real clear politics website you go on any number of websites where they just list poll after poll after poll after poll I counted last week it was two dozen polls came out in the course of a week. Um, what I tell people to do is sort of step back treat them first treat each poll as a snapshot because what it really is is a snapshot of the electorate at that point in time. Different polls are known to have different biases, not so much because they're left or right wing, but because the very science of trying to pick a representative sample of the choices you make about things like what's going to be the turnout or who are the likely voters actually does affect the results of the poll. So what I would say is look at the same polls over time if you want to capture trends. So if you see a poll, follow it. Over time, And then you can really see, is it moving in the same direction or not? What's striking about this year, for all the focus on the polls, this is a year where actually the results have been about as remarkably consistent as any presidential election I can remember. If you go back to July 1st, August 1st, September 1st, October 1st, everything's pointing towards Hillary Clinton being ahead. And Donald Trump's support has really not gotten above the low 40s at any point in time except for like one blip around the convention. Um, so it's actually shocking. For all the attention about the polls, this is a year where the polls are probably going to get it right because the race really isn't as close as it seems. Well, it, I, I guess when
0: you look at it, you know, Hillary Clinton has maintained that lead, um, you know, since uh, somewhere around the uh, convention. But but it does seem to me that it's, that it's um, been somewhat fluctuating and that it's been within what you guys call the margin of error. So... There are probably periods that you could probably make a case that maybe Trump has pulled ahead a little bit. Do you see that, Steve? Do you see that that consistency this
2: year um, as opposed to previous years? I mean, there, 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 was, there was a period where the polls tightened. When you think back to right around the time of Hillary Clinton's um, walking pneumonia and the comments about the basket of deplorables, from there to the first debate, there was a period where the polls did appear to tighten or did tighten up. Um, I, I think, though, there, the best that it ever got in the forecasts was somewhere between 50-50 and maybe a two-thirds chance for Clinton to win. It never really got for very long or very far into into forecasters saying Trump was actually, actually in the lead. Um, the other thing that, that I think you have to look at is, is when we're talking about the margin of error, if you have 10 or 15 or 20 or, you know, hundreds of polls in, in the case of this year that show Clinton with a narrow lead, even if they're all within the margin of error, the fact that they're all pointing in the same direction or that most of them are pointing in the same direction increases the confidence that we can have that says this this is the candidate that's actually in the lead. When, when you look at it, though, when you do see these fluctuations, um, and, and I,
0: I have not uh, bored down the way that you guys have um have the
1: undecideds remained the same has that fluctuated at all you know my take on it again and i i i look at a lot of polls obviously i'm not a, i don't conduct my own poll i'm mm-hmm. someone who looks at you call me an aggregator, right? I look across all the polls to sort of see what what you find. Generally, until, you know, when I saw movement amongst all the groups, there were a couple of key events, but I think the, the really key was that, that that video a few weeks ago seemed to be when you started to see that a lot of the demographic groups the movement sort of from the undecideds that were there kind of moving a bit. Now, you would see that naturally anyway as you got closer to the election, but that event, at least to me, looked like that was sort of one of the pivotal events. There was a lot of, and what is interesting, because of the sort of third-party candidates kind of hanging around and sort of there's two-party polls versus four-person polls, you know, you still see some support for, you know, the third-party candidates in the, you know, low 6 5%. So... That's still, they, they could move a lot towards election. That's what I would actually look for is to see if, you know, third party actually get the kind of vote they're even getting at all or whether they all sort of tilt one way or the other.
0: Would you put third party candidates in an undecided uh, category, Steve?
2: I mean, to to some extent, a lot more people are in the undecided category than say they're undecided at that moment. Because if, if only the people who said they were undecided were willing to change their minds, then you wouldn't see the polls move hardly at all, you know. Um, so, so there still are some people persuadable that say that they're voting for one candidate or the other. The thing about third parties specifically is that oftentimes in past elections, we've seen their support decline as Election Day gets closer. The question I think that's on everyone's mind is if they decline, whose who's sort of backup voters leave the third party? In other words, do, vo- do the voters who would otherwise vote for Clinton leave Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, or do the voters who would head off toward Donald Trump leave them. You know, if they sort of leave in equal numbers, then it could benefit both of the candidates. But if one candidate or the other benefits more, that's how the margin could potentially change.
0: You you have been doing some polling up in New Hampshire um, because of the Senate race up there as well as the governor's race. Uh, Dr. Johnson, I don't know how closely you've followed it. Uh, but in New Hampshire, there, there has been a very tight race because it's a uh, battleground state. Uh, and um, incumbent Senator Kelly Ayotte has been in a real tong war with uh, Governor Maggie Hassan. When I look at the numbers, there seems to me to be a conflict because Trump was giving, for a while anyway, Hillary, a pretty good um, run for the money. And and yet um, Kelly Ayotte had been, although it has reversed somewhat now, had been um, having somewhat of a lead up there, you know, maintaining Somewhat of a lead. So to me, there seems to be a disconnect there. How how do voters take a look at that when you see somebody willing to split their ticket?
2: You know, how, how do you take that into account when it comes to uh, looking at the surveys? Yeah, first of all I have to give a shout out to the voters in New Hampshire who are are uh, at this moment facing the biggest burden in terms of responding to polls, so <laughs> any New Hampshire voters who are listening to this, thank you from the bottom of my heart for answering the telephone. Um, they, it's because they have the most power, you know, in one way, because a lot of their elections are close, but it just means and, and, and they're a small state, but that combination means that they get polled a lot, so um, anyway, though, yes, I think that that there is a fair amount of that going on, and that is one of the dynamics that I think people will be watching the most closely on election night is how does the ticket splitting work? Over the last few decades, ticket splitting has been declining. Um, most most uh, analyses show that, that people are getting more and more partisan and, and voting the same way in uh, gubernatorial Senate and presidential elections. Um, but but the Republican Party this year I think is hoping that that it, that it will increase again because with Donald Trump looking in a, in a pretty weak position with a few with a few weeks to go, they would like to think that that some of their candidates like Kelly Ayotte and Rob Portman can escape the gravity of Donald Trump's performance in the states where where there's these potentially competitive Senate elections. With,
0: with the national um, aggregation that you do, Doctor Johnson, do you see that in some of the other polls that? Kind Kind of um, disparity between uh, the the top of the ticket and the down ballot uh,
1: races. Yeah, you absolutely do, and it, and it is interesting because you know it is absolutely true. Historically, ticket splitting has definitely declined, and so everybody this year is talking about that. And you really can just follow every single battleground state where there's a Senate race, and it's you know, and and everybody's looking to see, okay, um, can a Republican survive a mm-hmm. Trump loss of? large proportions that's the question you know the more that sort of deficit gets run up if trump loses and by five points six points seven points the thought is that will start to really be the drag on those senate candidates so if it stays close there's the notion oh they can continue to ticket split and you know ohio is said as a state where the republicans consistently been ahead rob portman um marco rubio in florida is in a pretty tough race but he's, he's generally been ahead Kelly Ayotte. Obviously, that's been a very, very close race. You all know that better than I do, but I've I've followed that a bit from even in Virginia. Um, People are focusing on that. The real question is, if there's a really big loss for Trump, that's when you would expect there to be a much bigger problem for the Senate and House candidates. And I think that's really where the panic in the sort of establishment, and again, I live in Washington, (laughs) D.C., the establishment of the Republican Party, that's where the concern really is, is are they going to get uh, what is going to be the damage from a loss at the presidential level?
0: I, there has been um, talk uh, among voters, uh, among, um, I guess, Trump supporters as well. The fear, or, or the, not not so much Trump supporters, but Republican um, officials, that as as the polling numbers widen, as the gap widens, that it could tamp down turnout. Um, Is that a legitimate
1: fear? Do polls have that much power over uh, people's voting habits? I mean, I think sort of modeling turnout is always one of the great challenges we have. And, And I... I don't know i i personally feel that's a little bit overstated i can't say i haven't seen tons of evidence about that this year of course there's always a concern if everybody's saying the race is over you, people aren't going to bother to go out and vote and the harder it is to vote the less likely they are to get out um that's partly why the campaigns generally or historically have spent so much money on their turnout the vote efforts because that's really where you know these elections can be won or lost um if people don't you know The presidential election is the attraction, right? If you think about it, sort um, of—that's what people come out to vote for in these years. So it could be, but again, I haven't seen really a lot of hard evidence on that.
0: Do you feel all powerful here,
2: Steve, in that you can affect people's uh, voting uh, patterns? The question is, I think, is age-old, really, both in terms of uh, empowering or both in terms of influencing turnout and influencing vote choice. You know, if you you can think about scenarios where if it's close, do people vote, vote? For who they want to win, where if it's if the election is showing a wider margin, then do they feel more empowered to vote strategically? You know, there are all these questions. I, I don't think that the, that it's well known exactly how polling influences voting, um, but it, there it's certainly a question we think about. Well, would Massachusetts then be an exemplar
0: of that? We we are sitting in here um, with Clinton having a 26 point lead according to your latest poll over Trump statewide. We don't have any other major down ballot statewide uh, races yet. There's a prediction that there's going to be a record turnout here. Why? Why is Massachusetts uh, bucking that trend?
2: Yeah, the, and that's one of the examples that makes me question whether or not you know having a close election is all that's going to turn people out. Because it's true that the presidential election is the is the draw. It typically. Um, so the lack of a competitive presidential election combined with the lack of anything else at the top of the ticket, no competitive congressional races, very few competitive legislative races, and two, only two of the four ballot questions even remotely competitive. The fact that, that, that uh, Secretary of State Bill Galvin's still predicting record turnout, I think calls into question the idea that it's, you're only going to go vote if there's an exciting race at the top of the ticket. Or maybe calls in question uh, Secretary of State Bill Galvin's uh, prediction. Well, that, that uh, could be, too. <laughs> I have to wait and see down
0: down in way. Virginia, uh, it, it has always been considered to be somewhat of a
1: battleground state, but apparently this year with Tim Kaine's entrance, there's uh, it, it's taking some of the drama out of there. You know, Virginia has consistently been trending more Democratic, but it's actually very interesting because Northern Virginia, which is sort of the suburbs right outside of Washington, D.C., that is generally sort of the blue part of the state. And then you just sort of get a little bit out of that. And then the rest of the state all the way down to Richmond has generally been historically more Republican. So it really is sort of the tale of two cities, (laughs) two worlds down there. Um, But over the last few elections... Virginia has voted more democratic and as that population center around DC has grown that's an area of tremendous population growth a lot more of kind of the 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 suburban uh, highly educated Democratic voters in Virginia and so the this it's it's almost to the point people are starting to call it not just purple but dark blue purple so it's definitely trending <laughs> so so then let,
0: let's take a look at the bottom line here um, What good does polling do the
1: average voter? I think polling is useful for a few things. I think, one, it's useful. I always talk about the snapshot. But I think it is good to sort of see, all right, what is the general state of the race? When you see these types of reactions, when you see pivotal events like debates or things like that, I think there's just useful information to be gleaned as you look at what's going on in the polls. I often think what gets ignored is, you know, everybody cares about the horse race. Who's going to win? But I always find interesting the stuff that I really enjoy are the questions – down the polls about people's attitudes what issues are bothering how they're reacting to candidates in different events i think that also tells us a really interesting picture of where the electorate is so beyond that um i think they should be viewed as exactly what they are one piece of information a voter can you know look at can gauge sort of for the newsworthiness of it but at the end of the day it you know the value in terms of shaping your vote i don 't think that really is what people should be paying attention to, but that 's just my opinion well beyond um, beyond the information that you 're giving to voters and stuff, what are
0: you pulling out of it, Steve? What do you see when you do these surveys?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think to to wax poetic for a moment, you know, polls are uh, an organized way for voters to speak to their leaders. You know, it, it, it's a way for voters who don't log on to Twitter and post their opinions, who don't show up at town halls, who aren't going to call their legislator or write a letter. We still call them and ask for their opinion. And then we we roll those all up together to, to uh, give, a, give a snapshot of what people in Massachusetts, for instance, think about the Olympics. You know, if, if, if there was no polling, all we would have to go on is the people who are vocal and committed enough to actually make their voice heard publicly on it. Whereas as polling, polling gets the voices of the people who don't necessarily do that. Um, it, it's a way of of giving feedback to leaders on the ideas that they're putting out, the policy ideas they're putting out, uh, reactions to their performance and so forth. So uh, I think, you know, the, the sort of non-horse race polling, that's the, that's the the value of it. You know, the horse race polling, I think, has, has a couple different, couple different uses. One is I think it's okay for people to, if they want to, decide how to vote based on how they think people like them are voting. Um, another one is that I think it's useful to know how society how different parts of society are reacting to different candidates and how they're reacting to different ideas that are being put forth. So, for instance, you think this year you've got the first female candidate on the ballot on one side, you've got a candidate who's had a lot of problems attracting female votes on the other side, so, you know, how are women voting? We wouldn't know that if we didn't do polling. We wouldn't know how Latinos are voting and how they're reacting to the ways immigration has been discussed or how African Americans are voting and reacting to the ways that that Donald Trump for the most part, has been talking about, you know, the, their lives. So I think there is value in horse race polling, if only as a demonstration of how different parts of society are reacting to the election as it unfolds.
0: Well, great, thank you, thank you very much. It's um, it's been very enlightening for me. But then again, um, I don't know much when it comes to this stuff. So <laughs> uh, that is uh, numbers crunching one hundred and one, uh, brought to you by Commonwealth Podcast. Um, that's it. I want to thank Dr. John Johnson, Steve Casella, for uh, joining us today. Also, thanks to our crack producer, the dude, Lear Johansson. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or on uh, iTunes, or go to our website at www.commonwealthmagazine.org for all our episodes. I'm Jack Sullivan. Thanks for listening and hope you tune in again.